Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter, I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne and I'm here with Sarah Coles, our Personal Finance Analyst. Hello Sarah, bright and early as usual, so I assume you haven't got stuck in any petrol queues which have been afflicting the country. No, thank goodness. Actually, round here it's not as bad as it was, but I've been so glad not to be commuting. That would have been an absolute nightmare at the moment. Yeah, the fuel crisis has certainly been the last headache the economy needed as the recovery from the pandemic was already faltering. We'll get into some of the other headwinds in a moment. But first, let's tell you what else is in the podcast. Well, you know how I love to bang on about saving and investing. Well, today we're looking at the other side of the coin. So this is about how retailers are desperately trying to persuade us to splash the cash in an episode we're calling The Retail Reckoning. So we're going to look at the big trends disrupting the sector. Yes, as our high streets undergo a metamorphosis, is there a place for the iconic department store? We're going to take a deep dive into what it's like to run one with Andy Burt, a former Debenhams assistant who's now at the helm of Bobby's, a new kid on the block in Bournemouth. Just how will the supply chain crisis disrupt his big plans? Hello, Andy. I hope you're away from the busy shop floor. Hold up in the stop room, perhaps. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, I've got five minutes of, uh, yeah, of sanity. <laughs> Thank you. Really good to have you on the programme. We're really looking forward to speaking to you more a little bit later. Plus, Sophie Lund-Yates, an equity analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne, will give us her assessment of the retail shares to watch. Yes, it goes without saying, there's pretty tough competition for the high street at the moment. A very different picture in, in retail parks. So, yes, we'll be looking at some of the runners and riders in the sector. Thanks, Sophie. And Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research here at Hargreaves Lansdowne, is going to talk about the fundamentals of investing in retail with Nick Shenton, Fund Manager, UK Income at Artemis Investment Management. Plus, we'll have our quiz, of course, a quick fire round where Susanna will test me on my knowledge of some of the more unusual businesses that have sprung up in the empty shops on the high street. But first, before we open the doors of the big retailers, let's have a look back at one of the big stories of last week, the end of the furlough scheme and just how it's going to affect the economy. Yes, it's come to an end almost 18 months after it was launched in April last year. Now we could be facing a rash of redundancies. The most recent estimates come from the Business Insights and Conditions Survey, which suggests around 6% of the workforce were full or partially furloughed at the end of August, give or take a percentage point on either side. And if you delve deeper into the figures, it's clear that this 6% or so won't spread evenly across the sectors. So almost 10% of people working in the arts, entertainment and recreation sectors were on furlough, and 16% of the people in what they call the other services activities which is things like hairdressers and beauty salons. But now the scheme's over, the worry is that many of these people will lose their jobs or have their hours significantly reduced. So a lot of uncertainty out there, and it's a real concern for certain age groups too. It was really interesting to read, Sarah, some research from the Resolution Foundation, which suggests that older and younger workers are more likely to be on furlough than their middle-aged colleagues. Younger people tend to find jobs relatively quickly, but this could be especially worrying as older people tend to stay unemployed for much longer when they lose their jobs. Yes, and and some of those people will hopefully be able to find work elsewhere, given there's over a million vacancies at the moment. But it's not going to be so easy for a lot of people, is it? Yeah, the problem is this mismatch of skills and experience between those leaving furlough and the vacancies available. So it may not prove a hard and fast solution to the labour supply crunch. 
The average independent forecast collected by the Treasury put unemployment at 5.2% in the last three months of 2021. And the Office of Budget Responsibility is even more pessimistic, so it reckons it's going to be about 6.5%. And if either of these forecasts come true, that's a really quite a jump from the 4.6% and the most recent figures. On the one hand, if people can retrain quickly and move industries, this shouldn't be a concern for investors. But the problem is in industries where there's a real shortage of people who are either prepared to do the work or where it just takes much longer to retrain. And this is one of the problems within the logistics industry, which we were talking about in the last podcast. Of course, one of the sectors wrestling with staff shortages in supply chains is retail, but that is far from the only challenge the sector is facing. Getting people in through the door is a struggle too, as much of the shopping is done online now. Yes, we saw a seismic shift during the pandemic. So before the crisis, around 20% of shopping was online. Then at the peak of lockdown, when hardly anything was open, it shot up to 37%. And even now, things are much closer to business as usual. Around 28% of shopping is done online. And there are all sorts of things at play here. So some people are trying to restrict the contact they have with other people. Um, some have fallen into new habits and some just sort of got over their reluctance to shop online when they didn't have any other choice. And all of this is having an impact on the numbers of people on the high street. Yeah, the latest figures showing the number of shoppers in September are still a long way shy of their pre-pandemic levels. On the high street, we're only seeing 80% of the number of shoppers who were there before the pandemic. And shopping centres are even worse off with 76% of their pre-pandemic levels of shoppers. Only retail parks are bucking the trend, it seems, with the number of shoppers back to 96% of the levels we saw in February last year. So given all of these looming problems, it's a brave man who wants to run a new department store amid all of this. So let's bring in Andy Burt from Bobby's. Hello, Andy. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here because I want to find out more about just why you are opening up in a former Debenham store. I mean, it does sound like a, a risky move in the current climate with supply and labour shortages. Tell me more about your plans and why you think it's a good idea. If I start from kind of where we, where Debenham's kind of ended, if you like, Bobby's and the, and the landlord of, of Bobby's, I had the idea even two years, two and a half years ago, um, you know, looking progressively at Debenham's, the writing um, was and has been on the wall for Debenham's for varying reasons, uh, probably dating back to 2003 when uh, we were taken over by the private equity groups and, and stripped Debenham's of its asset of owning most of its properties and leveraged about a billion pounds worth of debt. So it left Debenham's to survive on its wits and, and tenacity and with COVID or even before that open to the market forces. The properties managing landlords for the building came to myself actually and said, look, um, it's an iconic building in the town centre. Can we work with Debenham's? to uh, keep what was best of Debenhams and then start to evolve the other floors, creating experiential reasons for the public to come to buildings like this. I'm really interested in, in what, what kind of led you to this route. So can you tell me a little bit about sort of your journey from the shop floor to, to taking this role in Bobby's? <laughs> so, you know, I've been with Debenhams for 27 years. So kind of there is an element of, of man and boy from that point of view. So, yeah, I did a little bit of an equation where I went, yeah, 242 years Debenhams has been there. And I suddenly realised I'd been with that business for 11% of its lifetime. That was a bit of a shock. I started off with Debenhams when it was the Burton Group. I was, a, yeah, I was a sales advisor. I hadn't meant to kind of get into retail. I kind of fell in into retail. But it was very much people orientated and that's where I wanted to be at. 
I've done various roles. Um, you know, I've been, I think I worked it out in 13 different stores across the country in, in varying roles as store manager, sales manager. Um, I've also been the retail operations manager and a regional marketing manager. People can, you know, say, oh, was it, was it really bad at the end? It was, yeah, it wasn't great. Um, it was about making sure the people were all right, but they were a great company to work for. Although I wouldn't have been with them for 27 years. The department store model, it needs to be different, not just the way that Devon's went down, which was you know, to survive, mark down discounts, that side of it. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy that will only last you so long until it, it, it turns on you itself. And it's about you know, giving the public, customers, people from the locality a reason to come, first of all. Um, and then it's about what you have here that keeps them here to dwell and to shop. And so in addition to, to the sort of the shopping experience, can you tell a little bit more about some of the experiences that people can have? We've got beauty currently. The building is six floors. It's on a phased programme of really the next 12 to 18 months to curate um, each of the floors. The first part opened at the beginning of, of August, which is um, arts and culture element, um, giant gallery. And that's with Stuart, um, Stuart Semple, a locally renowned um, artist and sculptor. And he's curated a fantastic gallery um, on the second floor. On the ground floor, we created um, a beauty hall. Our ethos, again, is to infuse the, kind of the national, international and global brands. But what we really want to look at also is bringing um, local suppliers, crafters and, and curators and producers of, um, of beauty products. Um, so we've created a local, sustainable, conscientious brand arcade. We also are working with South Coast Makers Market, local crafters, producers of food, home products, etc. Um, and supporting them and bringing them to market. You can come in, you can have you know, Chanel, Estee Lauder, Christian Dior, but also we've gone very much local and looked within the local area of what we can curate. Andy, let me come in here. This all sounds expensive. These are expensive brands, expensive products, sculptors, art. Do you think the high street shopper is ready for this? And do you think going luxury, going towards the luxury end of the market is the best place to be right now? It's not just luxury. A lot of the local producers that we are using are not in the realms of you know, spending £100, £150 on a fragrance. They have elements where you, know, you can buy something from £5 and if you wanted to buy a Tom Ford fragrance at £230, you could. Um, from the art gallery, yeah, it's, it's a gallery, so you can view the, you know, the sculptures and the artwork, but also their artist and, and art shop as well. We want something that is what the community needs, combining experiential, yeah, say global and national brands, but also bringing local suppliers as well um, to the table and helping them come to market. We hear so much right now about labour shortages across so many industries, particularly retail. Just how difficult then is it to recruit staff right now? You've got two floors open, as you say, and you want to open many more. Will you be able to? We've been able to go to the ex-Debenham staff who are fantastic. The reason why Debenham's fell was not the staff or the people. You know, there's bigger things at play. But we've been able to maintain um, or bring back a lot of the great people that worked um, at Debenham. So to open the first part actually was a fairly, I don't say easy, but it, yeah, it didn't really reflect the issues that have been out there in the market because we had a base to work from. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, hairdressing, you know, nails, all those, all those elements that require you know, touch and interaction were stopped. You couldn't do it. What we're seeing now as we start to move and bring in other beauty offers is you know, it is slightly more difficult to find people that have that skill set or want to go back to that skill set of doing those, those treatment pieces, if that makes sense. Um, so I think that's going to prove, prove difficult uh, because they had to go and look for something else.
had to, yeah, people had to earn money during the pandemic. Currently, we're absolutely fine. But as, as we move through, it may prove harder. And I just want to find out how hard a bargain did you try and drive on rent, given the difficulties Debenhams faced tied into these long leases, which ultimately proved too burdensome? The landlord and the owners of the building are fully supportive of what we are doing. They are funding and supporting the curation of the building. Um, and we're fortunate that you know, they own this property and that's what they want to do. So how will you deal with the competition from retail parks where the ease of parking and bigger spaces are attracting more shoppers? Bournemouth has, has many different reasons to come and visit and it's, yeah, it's retailers' job within town centres to give people that reason to come in and shop or just to come in and visit. The bits that we're curating within the building is having different elements. That is arts and culture, that is food and beverage, that is experiential you know, health and beauty. Um, but the model is very much away from a Debenhams Mark II or a Beals Mark II from a department store point of view. OK, well, good luck, Andy, with all of those experiences and that curation that you're driving for shoppers in Bournemouth. Thanks very much for coming on to the Switch Your Money On podcast. Thank you very much. So listening to Andy is Sophie Lund-Yates, who is a senior equity analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. So Sophie, it's certainly not easy running a department store, as we've seen from the collapse of Debenhams, what happened at BHS, and to some extent the problems facing John Lewis right now, which is really trying to cope with one of the worst downturns in its history, it even had to scrap the annual bonus last year for the first time in 67 years. But it's hanging on in there with big changes to the store estate. And there are plenty of other survivors out there in the retail jungle, aren't there? What's their secret then? You've hit the nail on the head really there. There are a lot of survivors, not necessarily a huge number of particularly that um, traditional department store formats that are thriving. And, you know, it's important to note that difference. And one in that category is, you know, it's a high street staple, Sports Direct owner Fraser's Group, as it's now known. Um, So that is your classic large scale space, which means those really onerous rent bills, plus the falling footfall and fierce competition online. Um, If you keep in mind, you know, things like, leggings t-shirts and you know footballs are all the kind of thing you you're kind of more likely potentially to just jump online to buy it means it's been struggling for a little while and we all know there's big changes coming you know big changes in leadership with Mike Ashley's son-in-law set to take the reins it's coming at a time when it's working really hard to revamp itself including honing a more premium image which feeds into what Andy was just saying which is if you can do that if you make yourself a more desirable image you know people are more likely to want to go in there and and kind of handle the goods for example make it more of a a destination it's important they do something we've seen the value of of fraser's assets were really lowered by the pandemic um you know you look at pre-tax profit last year swung from just over 143 million to 8.5 million that new strategy is relying on customers coming back in force it's very much a wait and see on that front moving on to something a bit more positive because they're a bit more nimble and that is next who uh, it was quite embarrassing actually for them that's their words not mine they had to increase their full year guidance for the fourth time at half year results at the end of september a large part of that is their online business which has done really really well we all remember that next used to have a directory that delivery infrastructure was already there so their their online business was way more mature than others on the high street which meant they've really been able to capitalize on the shift and they've got a huge presence in retail parks 
which is a huge benefit um, and not something that I think is, is going to go away anytime soon and really supports their click and collect proposition in particular. The physical estate is really important to Next. Um, I think it's something like over 80% of orders, online orders, are returned in a physical shop. So, you know, you think about that, it's, it's still an important part. That said, they are not immune from the falling footfall, obviously. You know, we're still expecting the store estate to shrink further over the coming years. But the key difference compared to bigger names in particular and high street areas um, is they've got very short lease agreements. So that gives them a lot of flexibility. And what about the commercial landlords? How are they faring? Yes, yeah, so I always kind of view the the corporate landlords as a bit of the... They're almost the invisible bystanders of changes in the industry. We all hear about the closures on the high street and everyone talks about the, the sector at large, but you rarely will look at a closure sign or a closing down sale sign and think, oh, how's the landlord doing? You just think about the business. So that's, for me, a really interesting side to this you have names like British Land for example who are one of those large-scale corporate landlords and when their tenants suffer they suffer so in testament to those changes in the sector British Land is shrinking the retail portfolio selling a lot of those properties and it's pivoting to focus on larger higher quality out-of-town sites beating that retail park drum but it's such a huge shift and I think a really long-term change it's also upping its exposure to logistics and fulfillment assets so that's you know thinking about things like warehouses servicing online demand and it's quite easy to get swayed by some of the numbers we're seeing which is that retail visits are or footfall is climbing back to pre-pandemic levels in some areas but that doesn't mean that the challenges are over some future proofing is definitely still needed simply put the current volume of traditional shops cannot be supported by the level of footfall we're seeing. And that means that the likes of British land and their tenants um, are just going to continue focusing on on out-of-town locations and digital operations. That's kind of top of the watch lists now and I think for the foreseeable future. Okay, Sophie, thanks very much. Sophie Lund-Yates there, our senior equity analyst, talking about the huge changes rippling through the retail sector right now. Yes, and for a broader picture of that, let's cross to Emma Wall now, who's our Head of Investment Research here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And she's been talking with Nick Shenton, who's the Fund Manager of the UK Income Fund at Artemis Investment Management. Hi, Nick. Emma, hi. Great to catch up. You too. So we're talking retail today. And e-commerce is not a new thing, but it's fair to say it's been considerably accelerated over the last 18 months. How has that impacted the retail sector? Yes, that's absolutely correct to say that there's been a real acceleration in a trend that was already there for people to research and purchase online. So it has accelerated that trend. On the other hand, within retail, the fundamentals are still the same, which is you've got to provide value for money for your customers. In that sense, you could almost look at digital as another channel, another way to delight your customers. It's really shone a light on who is prepared for this multi-channel world and who isn't, sadly. Uh, And that's been a very difficult time, we acknowledge, for a lot of people who are caught up in, in, in these headwinds. But clearly it provides opportunities for companies and investors as well. Let's drill down then into some of those companies that you believe this has created opportunities for and indeed investment opportunities for people like yourself who invest in in UK equities, in particular with the need for income. Which firms are getting this right? 
Part of our job is really understanding risks before we think about rewards. And I'd wind the clock back and say, first of all, it's always easy with hindsight, but we've been quite cautious around the retail sector for a number of years because we could see the change, but we couldn't quite put our finger on who was going to benefit. And that's been a bit of a fuzzy picture, let's say, it's come more into focus over the past 18 months. Now, a clear winner that's been in the portfolio for a long time and frankly has done better than we'd anticipated is actually a real estate business called Segro, which owns distribution centres. We had an inkling going back five or six years that there'd be more demand for their sites. And that was right, but it's come through far stronger than we'd ever really anticipated, to be honest. And then about 12 months ago, we started buying shares in a company that we've been watching for a long, long time, which is Next. We think that they've done a tremendous job of continuing to delight their customers with their proposition, but navigate their way through very, very difficult changing environment, such that now they're positioned to benefit from technology as an opportunity, not just as a threat. And they're doing that through opening up their business and selling third-party brands. They're going overseas. They're extending their ranges, selling more and more children's wear. They're selling uh, more homeware. They've done a deal with Victoria's Secret, where they're uh, operating a joint venture in the UK now and expanding their addressable market. So to us, we think that Next really stands out as a a multi-channel winner. Thinking then about retailers, it seems those that are going to survive and thrive are those with a competitive advantage over peers. So whether that be a network effect or superior logistics, as you've alluded to there, what then about luxury stocks? I know that's something that you have had in the portfolio. And there it's the sort of brand awareness, isn't it, which provides that competitive advantage or potential competitive advantage over peers. That's right, Emma. And When we were researching last year and doing our channel checks on the luxury sector, and and as you rightly point out, we bought shares in Burberry back in the spring of, of 2020 and through the summer. What really struck us was actually how rare true luxury brands are, because you need an element of mystique and heritage and almost sort of the intangible cult status of these brands to be able to participate in the industry. And you can't launch a luxury brand overnight and achieve that scale of heritage. If you take Burberry, its roots lie with Thomas Burberry back in the 1860s and innovating on outerwear. And that's 160 years of heritage. The same when you look at Louis Vuitton or or Chanel. We're talking about businesses that have been experts in their craft and absolutely diligent in providing the highest quality product for generations now. And so I think that's the the key point of difference within luxury. And actually, when you look at it, there's not actually that many brands globally that can lay claim to being in that elite group. So it sounds like not all bricks and mortar retail is dead, in your view. There's a space for the traditional shop on the high street, albeit an upmarket high street, it doesn't all have to go e-commerce. That is absolutely our view. And the way we look at it is to say customers want to engage with brands in a variety of ways. It's not just online. And if you take luxury as an example, 
part of the experience is actually going to the store. Yes, uh, you can expand your addressable market by selling online, but we think multi-channel is absolutely the route forward. And if you don't believe us, look at Amazon with what they've done with Whole Foods and then even businesses like Warby Parker in the US, which is a glassmaker, a spectacles business. They started online and they're moving into owning stores. So we see a convergence of the models, actually. We don't think just being solely online is necessarily the route to reaching the most customers. But as Simon Wilson at Next said, they didn't have a store problem. They had a rent problem. And those rents have come down dramatically, reflecting the multi-channel world that we live in. Nick, thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you. Great to speak, Emma, and look forward to seeing you in person at some point soon, I hope. Well, that was Emma Wall with Nick Shenton, Fund Manager of the UK Income Fund at Artemis Investment Management. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne with me, Susanna Streeter and Sarah Coles. Now it's what you've been waiting for, the quiz. So in honour of the ingenuity of people who've been taking over clothes shops and reimagining the future for the high street, Susanna tells me she's been scouring the high street for more unexpected companies springing up. I certainly have. I've tracked down some really unusual offerings and it's uh, time to find out whether you can get them right. So first one, can you ride a roller coaster in a repurposed shop? Really? Well, I've I've ridden a roller coaster in, in a hotel in Las Vegas, but I just I can't see how you'd squeeze one into a shop. So, so no, that's going to be a no. Our way you can. It's actually a virtual reality roller coaster. So it is a bit of a cheeky question, but it's all part of a wave of virtual reality experiences opening up in empty shops where apparently you can now ride these roller coasters and motorbikes or engage in high tech battles. How about, though, a whiskey palace? Do you think that exists? Oh, well, I, I suppose I, mean, I spent a lot of my formative years in Scotland, so I can actually believe that one is real. Yes, I think that one's real. You've got it. It's a former department store in Edinburgh, taken over by Diageo and turned into a Johnny Walker Emporium, where you can take a tour and enjoy two floors worth of bars devoted to whiskies. So there you go. So finally, what about a hedgehog cafe? <laughs> Hedgehogs? Uh, it sounds like it can't be real. Um, but then I said that about the roller coasters. Oh, I'm going to say real. Well, not in the UK yet, although there are plenty of cat cafes, so you never know. I'm sorry, Sarah. I knew some of those would catch you out, but I wouldn't mind trying the whiskey place. That's very much up my street. Oh, no, I'm afraid I let the side down after being born in Scotland because I can't stand whiskey. But I do love a roller coaster, so maybe I'll get myself a virtual reality one after this. Before we go, though, we do need to remind you that this was recorded on the 4th of October and all information was true at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest. And this is not advice or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. 
You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left for me is to thank our guests, Andy, Sophie, Emma and Nick, and our producer, Elizabeth Hudson. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know what you think and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you can get a fresh new episode in your inbox as soon as it's ready. Goodbye. <laughs>